Today's scripture lesson is found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may, be, you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you, and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Kids make the best stories, uh, particularly for preachers. Um, though I can't really talk about my own. We have a five-year-old blondie. Uh, we call him Peanut. He's, he's a mutt. And that's, you know, the stories that we have with our child, and he is our child. We treat him more like a human than we treat each other like that. Uh, but he, uh, most of the stories that involve him uh, involve napping, um, stretching, yawning, that sort of stuff. So we can't really, we don't really talk about our own child all that often. But kids make the best stories. Uh, particularly, we have a... Well, we, our non-blood-related niece. We call her our niece because we love her like family and we're always around her and everything, but she's not by blood our niece. But we adore her. She is just fantastic. She's hilarious. And right now, uh, she is obsessed with a couple of things uh, currently. She's, about, uh, she's almost four years old. That's crazy. Next month, she's going to be four years old. And she's obsessed with a couple of things right now. Um, the movie uh, that just came out, Encanto, particularly the song, We Don't Talk About Bruno, go figure. Uh, she's obsessed with telling Alexa what to do. I don't know why they still have an Amazon Alexa, but they do, and she orders that thing around like nobody's business. And the third thing is a single word. Can anybody guess what word she's obsessed with right now? She, she was obsessed with no for a very long time, but she just recently changed in the past couple of months. Actually, why? I heard it. Actually? Why? Yeah, why? That, that word. I mean, she is obsessed with that word. You, you tell her anything in the world. It could be a question, a statement, whatever. You just tell her something, and she's most likely going to answer with why. You know, we're... We're going, we're going to get in the car. Why? We're doing this. Why? Uh, the sky is blue. Why? It doesn't matter what, you know, you give her, give her any kind of information and she's going to go with why. And uh, a couple of nights ago, 
she and I were uh, playing around and we were wrestling a little bit and she was chasing me around the house and all this stuff and so I, I you know, got exhausted well before she did. And so I went to go, uh, I went to go get a uh, drink and she said, play with me. And I said, I will in just a second, I'm gonna get a drink. And she said, why? And I said, because I'm thirsty. Why? Huh, I've thought about that one before. Why am I thirsty? Uh, and and I, I was very close to giving her the answer that, well, because the cells in my body have been losing water during this moment, my brain has released an ADH hormone that has caused my blood vessels to constrict and my blood pressure to rise, and so my natural response is to take in fluids. And I thought about giving that response to her, uh, but then I realized uh, not only would she just answer with, why again, <laughs> uh, she wasn't actually concerned with why I was thirsty. And she wasn't actually concerned really with why I went to go get a drink or anything like that. What she was concerned with is why was I not paying attention to her in that moment? That's the real question. Or maybe a different way to look at this is what's the intentionality behind what I'm doing? Because she wanted to know that what I was doing was eventually going to end up back with us playing together. Kids at that age are just fascinating, and I, and I think that that question, why, is an incredibly powerful question uh, that kids ask. They want to take in as much information as possible and understand the world at a level that, uh, that people with more experience and development understand it. And I think that we should take the time to acknowledge those questions whenever they're asked of us, that question, why? There's a uh, popular speaker uh, who really works with businesses. His name is Simon Sinek, and you might have heard me talk about him before. Uh, he gives a TED Talk called Start With Why. And his whole talk is about figuring out what's at the root of whatever we're trying to do. Particularly whenever he's working with businesses, he's saying, get to the root of why you are in business. Start with why. And so whenever kids ask this question, why, or anybody asks this question, why, I think it's important to get to the root of it, to get to the intentionality behind it. Because like Ernest wanted to know, uh, why was I choosing water for a moment over her? What was the intentionality behind it? Well, she might not know that big word quite yet. She gets the purpose. She wants to understand the intent. So that's the word I'd like for us to unpack today, intentionality. Uh, word that's kind of becoming more into our vernacular these days. Intentionality, if you were to just like break out your phone right now and Google search that word intentionality, the definition you're going to get is the fact of being deliberate or purposeful. Cool, perfect. I guess we, we, we could have figured that out on our own. But the act of being, or the fact of being deliberate or purposeful. Doing something deliberately, doing something purposeful is to do something with intentionality. In other words, it's a choice. Intentionality involves a choice, and not just any kind of choice, like the choice that uh, you might have made, the very first choice you made this morning. Anybody remember what the very first choice you made this morning was? To get up? <laughs> All right, y'all, you're more decisive than I am. My first uh, choice was, do I get up? 
or do I hit the snooze button? Um, yeah, to get up and then, you know, we make uh, hundreds of more decisions between that moment and where we are right now, whether we acknowledge them or not, whether we really uh, know them. Perhaps you're a person who has multiple different routes that could get you from your home to here and you, take, you chose a particular route this time and it was a choice that you made. And a lot of these choices, they don't really have a whole lot of intentionality behind them. It's just, that's just what we do. We just t make that choice because why wouldn't we? Um, for example, whenever I got up this morning, uh, the outfit that I chose to wear, there was absolutely no deliberation about it. It was just because that's what was clean and available. Easy enough. Some of, some of you might have more intentional decisions about what you're wearing today. But intentionality involves a choice. Uh, one choice that I have, uh, over the past couple of years, really learned the impact of uh, is the choice to marry my wife. And uh, yeah, of course, that's a pretty impactful decision. Uh, but it was a decision, while made many years ago, that my wife and I decided, or understood, through all of this, that that wasn't the last time we were going to make that decision. That the decision to marry one another was a decision that we would have to make every single day. Every single day when we wake up, we once again are faced with that choice. Are you going to marry me? Okay, yes, let's keep doing this. Uh, and that deliberate choice there every single day has uh, made the past five and a half years some of the most spectacular of my life. Uh, but it's a deliberate, purposeful choice that we make every single day with each other. Uh, and there are many of these others that we make as well. And each one of them has to go back to the why of it all. What's the intentionality behind it? What's the purpose behind it? While that is a deliberate and purposeful choice, what is the purpose? And my, my wife, um, she's very much a words of affirmation person. So next time you see her, the more words, positive words that you can give her, the more you'll make her day. I mean, she just loves it. Um, so so she, she picked up this fun little thing after we did uh, premarital counseling. Uh, the person who married us had us uh, answer a question at the end of each session, which was, why do you love Kristen today? And Kristen, why do you love Micah today? And so since then, she asks me uh, nearly daily, uh, why do you love me today? Oh, okay. This is part of the choosing every single day. And also part of her needing those words of affirmation. She wants to know every single day, why do you love me today? Why? What's the deliberate purposeful nature behind our marriage and this choice that we have made together. And she doesn't let me use the same answer multiple days in a row, so I have to come up with something new every time, which I will say isn't hard to do, uh, but it is something that I do. <laughs> uh, and, and it all comes back to because I want to, because I want to love you today, because I want to be with you today because everything about being with you is a choice that I make that makes my life better uh, and, and that I love doing. And that really gets to the heart of the matter, that these kind of decisions, intentionality, come from the heart, come from something that's difficult to unpack and explain, 
Uh, there really aren't good words to talk about that. If you were to try to describe to somebody what is love, it's not that easy. But it comes from the heart. And today, as we heard this passage uh, from Revelation, this weird, intense passage, uh, I want us to be thinking about the why of it, the intentionality behind it. It was uh, in Isaiah chapter 29, verses 13 and 14, that, that God says to the people, or God says to the prophet Isaiah about the people, God says, since these people turn toward me with their mouths and honor me with lip service while their heart is distant from me and their fear of me is just a human command that has been memorized, I will go on doing amazing things to these people, shocking and startling things. Uh, and God takes a moment to recognize here that most of the people who are, who are claiming this faith are doing so by word alone. Yes, I am a Christian. Okay, that's word alone. Where's the evidence of it? Where's the activity behind it? God says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, their faith isn't something that's intentional. It's just something that they do because it's what they've always done. God even says, their fear of me is just a human command that has been memorized. Think about that. The only reason they have any kind of respect or worship for me, God says, is because they were told to. And that's not what God is interested in. What God is interested in is the heart of it, the intentionality behind it. Faith, as it is, is an intentional daily choice. It's something that we choose every single day. From the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, if we're conscious, faith is a choice. It's not necessarily something that we just have, it's something that we choose every single day. And it's something that we choose out of a recognition that we can never be enough for ourselves. I, uh, you've heard me talk about uh, that musical Hamilton, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote ages ago at this point. And one of the songs in there that I really connect with is the song, uh, never satisfied. It says, he will never be satisfied. And it talks about how he, uh, Adam Hamilton is continuing to write and do all this stuff and continuing to pour himself into all of these things because he's never satisfied with where he's at. Uh, this is a, a, a concept that I really relate to, uh, never being satisfied. I get bored really easily. Uh, product of my ADHD that's just carried on into adulthood, I just get bored really quickly. And uh, have this very same concept that my wife uh, says, you just don't, you're just not satisfied <laughs> with, with where you are. Like she's very much a Zen kind of person. She can be very content right where she is. And I'm like, oh, let's go do something. Let's go do this or talk about this or this, this, this. Uh, this concept of never being satisfied is built into the human condition. We are very difficult to be fully satisfied. There's always something that's slightly missing, something that's slightly off, something that we just don't quite connect with. And that something is completed in Christ. So we get, this, get to this point in uh, Revelation uh, where there are these seven letters being written to seven different churches in Asia. 
And Grant, I will let you know, this isn't the Asia that we think about today. Uh, 2,000 years ago, Asia would have been what's modern-day Turkey. That's, that was Asia at that time. Uh, and there are seven churches there that get this letter written to them, uh, or a letter written to them. And the last one goes to the church in Laodicea. And this uh, church is really struggling, but not in the way that we typically think of a church struggling. They've got plenty of members. They've got plenty of funding. They're doing all this stuff. But where they're struggling is in their faith. Now, Laodicea is a, was a very, very wealthy city. I mean, incredibly wealthy. It was basically a financial capital of this area and one of the most prominent in the entire Roman Empire. Uh, in the year 60 CE, there was a massive earthquake that hit this area. And they had the funding to be able to completely rebuild their town without getting any outside help. It was just their own finance. Like, that's how wealthy they were. Didn't need to request any kind of uh, federal or state aid. Like, they had it all right there. There were also a group that was very fashionable, I'll say. This is like the, the Paris or Milan of, uh, of the ancient world. Like they, they were known for their uh, exports and clothing, the fine clothing that they made. They were also a very medically proficient society. Uh, medically, they had like the top knowledge, the best doctors. In fact, on their currency, if you were to go to uh, the city of Laodicea, on their currency, you wouldn't see any leaders on their coins. Uh, you would see doctors. That's how medically proficient they were. And Laodicea was known for their entertainment district. They were really big on entertainment. They, they had one of the largest amphitheaters at the time. Uh, they were doing some incredible plays and stuff like that. They were very much into entertainment. In other words, this is the city that like has it all. And they were very self-sufficient. And they didn't need anything else. And this is why Jesus starts calling them out so harshly. He starts off by saying, the very first thing, I know your works, Jesus says. I know your works. In other words, I know your deeds, uh, the things that you do. I know your actions. I know what you are doing. And then he starts calling them out on their laziness because they didn't really have to do a whole lot. They were an entertainment district. They were just there for the pleasure of it all just to be able to relax in comfort. And there wasn't a whole lot of works that they were actually doing. They get called out on their laziness. And then Jesus goes on to say, you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot or neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, that word spit there uh, is actually the word vomit, but they're a little bit more tame <laughs> with this translation. Uh, yeah, that they, that they are an indecisive bunch. Now, the, the concept of hot and cold here isn't necessarily like a passionate group versus a, a, an apathetic group. Rather, hot and cold was meant more in militaristic terms, like you're either on my side or you're against my side. Uh, and the church in Laodicea was on the fence. They sat right in the middle. They weren't really on Jesus' side, but they didn't deny Jesus. And they weren't really against Jesus, but they didn't uh, go headstrong into this faith. They just sat right in the middle. And so they get called out on their indecisiveness. 
And then we get to verse 18. Uh, well, well, actually, I should start with verse 17, uh, where Jesus says, You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Like, I mean, just like, boom, slapping in the face over and over again. Like, let's really get to the heart of this matter here. And uh, verse 18, Jesus says, Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. See the irony in this? They're already a very rich uh, community. But Jesus is saying, no, you've got the wrong kind of wealth. And then he says, And white robes to clothe you, and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. Once again, this is a, a fashion capital, right? They know fine clothing. And Jesus says, you don't know fine clothing. Let me show you what that's all about, because your shame is everywhere. And then, he says, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Once again, a medical district here. Like this, they were very medically proficient. And Jesus says, I've got the actual ointments that you need. Now, in all of this, what Jesus is calling them out on is really their self-sufficiency. Jesus is saying, this isn't what being the church is all about. There's no intentionality behind your faith. In fact, your faith seems to be so far removed from you because you feel like you're able to take care of yourself. And you don't understand that what you actually need is what I have. And what you have is not nearly as important as what I have and why you need it, Jesus says. And so this is where we start to see the impact of intentional faith. Because Jesus eventually gets to this point in verse 20. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. And now, this expression has long been understood to mean that Christ stands at the door of our hearts. That Christ stands at the door of our heart knocking, waiting to come in and transform us and move us from the inside. And this is a very reasonable and perfectly uh, fine interpretation of this passage. But it's not what the author has intended necessarily because it misses a key point. This letter is not written to an individual. It's not even written to a bunch of individuals. It doesn't call out this person's name and this person's name and this person's name. Rather, it's a letter to the church as a whole as a community. And, and as this community, what this letter is stating is that Jesus is standing at the door to the church, knocking. And for some reason, Jesus isn't being let in to the church. It's a little ironic. But as we acknowledge what's really going on here, we start to see that, that what Jesus is trying to get to is into this intentional faith community. It's as if the church has closed its very doors on Christ and adopted the same mentality as the rest of the community. We don't need anything but ourselves. We certainly don't need Christ, that guy who's going to come in here and try to make things all kinds of about not us. And we want it to be about us. Meanwhile, Christ is at the door knocking, desiring to be let in to fellowship with the church and to show them a life of intentional faith. And really, Christ is going to show them the 
why of their faith, the intention behind their faith. And so as we hear this, I want to offer us a challenge to choose intentional faith. Our faith is a daily, if not moment by moment, choice that we make to live life differently than we ever have before, to live life out of love and compassion, justice and mercy, to live life as Christ has called us. And this intentional faith recognizes that we will never have enough until we have Christ. And this intentional faith recognizes and calls us to question if Christ is even permitted in our community. Do we allow the same Christ in our church as the Christ we see in Scripture? And then we see that intentional faith demands that we ourselves understand why we are a part of this faith. Do you know why you believe? Do you know why you act on faith? Is it because it's something that you've always been taught to do? Because if so, that's what God was talking about in Isaiah. That's not what God is looking for. What God is looking for is a heart of faith. And so I call each of us today to choose intentional faith. Let us pray.